Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Icons, we got to talk about Cozy. I love anything cozy, and specifically I want to talk about Cozy, the North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture made for modern living. Now, Cozy strives to provide the best furniture shopping experience with elegant, high-quality products, super-fast delivery, and easy assembly. Cozy offers beautiful, customizable sofas and sectionals, so if you want to get something for your living room but you're not sure if you just want a sofa, a love seat, or if you want a sectional, they have all of it, and they are uh, made to adapt to your space. This means Customers can add seats to their sofas over time. So if they get one thing, you can always add to it in the future. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, some wall shelving. I have a credenza from there as well as uh, they have TV stands, accessories. I also have a rug from there that I love because it's washable. I can throw it in. Uh, and everything's designed with purpose. So when designing its furniture, Cozy focuses on the customer experience to make sure it offers a product that's super easy, like I said, elegant and durable, easy to assemble, I should say. And uh, the products will fit the person's needs. You can also get outdoor sofas and coffee tables. And so it's not just indoor. And uh, Cozy also opened its first retail space on Queen Street in Toronto to push the experience to the next level. So you can check that out. So transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy, C-O-Z-E-Y.com to start customizing your furniture. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino. I'm so excited about today's episode because we are talking all about Abercrombie and Fitch. Now, Abercrombie and Fitch, of course, was the store of my era of my growing up. And there's a new documentary on Netflix called The White Hot, The Rise and Fall of Abercrombie and Fitch. It's explained as a documentary that explores ANF's pop culture reign in the late 90s and early 2000s and how it thrived on exclusion. Now, I got a chance to see this documentary early. It's fantastic. I have the director, Allison, on the show today, and her and I are going to be talking all about this brand and where it went wrong, where it went right, how it affected the larger pop culture stratosphere. I played a clip from that LFO song that was Everywhere on the radio in the, I think, I guess that was the early 2000s when that song came out. But Abercrombie and Fitch truly was the status symbol of my youth. And I remember going into the store and wanting just one of the t-shirts, but my mom, the Pellegrino said, and no, she wasn't interested in spending $65 on a cheap t-shirt. And looking back, I'm glad she didn't. You know, she took me to over to the Aeropostale and I got a shirt that was a couple sizes off, even though it was labeled a large. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. The point is, uh, Allison's documentary is so fantastic because it's nostalgic, but then it also goes into the deeper stuff and kind of pulls back the curtain at some of the horrific practices that were going on at Abercrombie that some of which I think we knew about and then some of which I was surprised to see in the documentary because there were things that were happening at HQ that I just wasn't aware of, but it's, it's truly shocking stuff. I mean, it's, it's fascinating. And those, ANF quarterlies, I think I posted on social media recently, Matt and I were moving and we found a box of these old quarterlies and they're the catalogs. And as a young closeted queer boy, I remember going into the store and wanting to sneak one of these catalogs because they had the blouseless men with their the tops off and the abs out and the butts out. You know, you could see lots of caboose in those quarterlies. Ton of caboose on display. I think Channing Tatum even displayed his precious caboose, which you know, I think Channing Tatum's caboose is an A-plus caboose, but that's not the point. The point is, this documentary is fascinating stuff. If you grew up in the late 90s or the early 2000s, you got to watch it. It's on Netflix this Tuesday, so probably when you're listening to this podcast, it's already out. If not, it'll be out uh, very shortly, and you can check it out, but it's it's so good. Even if you haven't seen this documentary, I hope you enjoy this chat with Allison, the director. She also directed the Jagged Little Pill documentary, which is on HBO Max. It's a fantastic documentary on that Alanis Morissette album. 
So she's really got her finger on the pulse, I feel like, on some of the most important pop culture moments. She's a great director, and this documentary is is just so phenomenal and interesting and compelling and also horrifying some of the things that were going on in front of our eyes and then also behind the scenes. I mean, shocking stuff. And yeah, shocking stuff. So I hope you enjoy this chat. Uh, with Allison. Check out the documentary on Netflix. Find me on social media at Danny Pellegrino on Twitter and Instagram. Get my book, How Do I Unremember This, wherever you get your books. And we'll be back later this week with all the pop uh, culture Bravo stuff. So tune in to Everything Iconic. Subscribe, follow, wherever you listen to this podcast, be sure to subscribe or follow or click that button. It really helps to make sure you get all the new episodes and then it helps me on my end. So uh, please click that subscribe or follow button wherever you listen. I want to thank Acast. And without further ado... Please enjoy my chat with the director of White Hot, The Rise and Fall of Abercrombie and Fitch. I like girls that wear Abercrombie and Fitch. I take her if I have one wish. She's been gone since that summer, since that summer. Allison Clayman. Allison, how are you doing today? I'm doing so well. I'm so happy to be here and really excited to talk about the movie with you. I thought it was so good. I loved it. And I sort of romanticize that era so much, but I also think there were so many problematic things happening. And at the top of that list, it was really the hold that Abercrombie and Fitch had on my generation. And it really made me think of like my first experiences with Abercrombie and Fitch. And I grew up in Northeast Ohio, but it was such a status symbol. And I'm curious, what was your first experience with the store? Um, I really want to hear more about yours, I'll also just say. And that is my favorite thing about this topic and making this movie is like immediately when you bring this up with people of our, I'll say broadly generation or like all these micro generations, it's like everybody immediately is telling you like where they grew up or like, you know, how they felt about their body or how much money their family had, or, you know, who was cool at school. I mean, so for me, (laughs) I grew up outside of Philadelphia. I went to like a small Jewish day school where honestly, certainly in my grade, like nobody was particularly fashionable. Um, So I was kind of lucky in the sense that Abercrombie didn't have like a hold on my like immediate social group. And I would say for me, like Abercrombie was super intimidating. I remember the King of Prussia mall, the store there, like it was dark and had the shutters and the hot guys. And if I was at the mall with my mom, we were not going in there that I I wasn't fighting for it and it wasn't happening. But I feel like even though it wasn't a part of the social milieu of like my school, it you know, loomed large in my understanding of what was cool, what was beautiful, what was, you know, American. And I definitely was also able to get the message like, this is not for me. That was kind of how I felt. I just felt like I wasn't going to fit in the small sizes and the people in the pictures didn't look like me. And I sort of got all the messages that they were sending out loud and clear. You mentioned the store, and I always remember the whiff of the fierce cologne coming through like yards away from the actual store. Our nearest one was at a, a place called Beachwood Mall in, in Northeast Ohio. And and I had spent uh, my first, uh, my grade school years at a Catholic school where we wore uniforms. And so I never really had to think about what I wore. And then when I got to seventh grade, I transferred over to public school and my parents, we didn't have a ton of money and I, w- I had two older brothers, so I would wear often their hand-me-downs. And and anytime I would get clothes, my parents were not spending the money. I remember going into an Abercrombie and like just wanting one t-shirt. And it was my mom looked at the price tag and was like, absolutely not. So we would head on over to like Aeropost... Was it Aeropostal? Is mm-hmm. that how you say it? it was like, I don't know, but that's how I would say it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like the cheaper Abercrombie. And so like, I was lucky to get either that or like an American Eagle, but... I still, I remember what a status symbol it was my first few days going into a public school for the first time and realizing almost immediately at such a young age, how much this was currency in that world of if you had an Abercrombie t-shirt, even if it was just a t-shirt, but it said A and F on it, and it wasn't Aeropostale or or some generic thing. It was currency. It's fascinating to me. And then the documentary really explores some of the underbelly of that. And there were so many things wrong with it. I think 
aside from the currency of the clothing, there was also a lot of racism. I mean, talk about some of the things that you explored in the documentary. Well, that was the other thing that got me interested in the story. And to me, was honestly the most mind-blowing part of it, besides how personal it was for everyone, which just means you're like, there's an audience for this. And also, it's going to be really emotional and personal for the people in the film. But the blatant, top-down way that... um you know, racism and sort of white elitism was upheld within the company. I just was so shocked to see how systematic it was because I think this story really lets us kind of make concrete and visible some of these sort of seemingly abstract ideas that we talk about that influence and and harm our lives and, and in society, you know, ideas of like, how does structural racism or institutional racism, like, what does that really mean or look like? Or is it hard to pinpoint? Not here. Like here, it was like really easy. It's like you have stores and you have someone coming in from corporate headquarters, very often someone who was a different generation than these 20-year-old managers at the store level who was telling them, you have too many black people or Asian people on the floor or like that person isn't cool enough. That person isn't hot enough. That person like doesn't seem like they're fun enough. Um, And, you know, all these employees talked about, you'd think you'd be measured on, I mean, this is a clothing company. They're selling clothes. They care about the bottom line. It was never about like the sales numbers that they were doing at the store. It was like how cool are the people on the floor and truly commenting on the racial makeup. And they, you know, this is an industry that's super discriminatory already, like fashion. I mean, nobody's saying like fashion is intended to be inclusive or certainly at that time it wasn't, but Abercrombie was like a really flagrant example within an already discriminatory industry. And they stood out even among their competitors in terms of how white their employees were. And that's why when they got sued in a class action labor discrimination lawsuit in the early 2000s, it was a pretty strong case and they and they settled it, you know, right away because it was like they really didn't have anything to hide behind. But that's the kind of like peeling back the layers that the film does, like kind of bringing you in with the nostalgia and like kind of what a huge phenomenon this clothing store, this brand was. I mean, talk about what the imagery was that they were putting out there. But then that underbelly was really like a very top down, like you can point to how it came to be. It wasn't just that they hired a bunch of like managers who just wanted to hire like hot white people. It's actually completely not what happened. And it's interesting. Some of the coded language that was revealed in the in the film, like you mentioned, the higher ups would come into the stores and say that person doesn't look maybe cool enough or something. And it, it's so clear what they're really saying. Yeah, it, it, it was made very clear. And, you know, one of the plaintiffs, one of the named plaintiffs in this class action lawsuit, Anthony Ocampo, he, uh, you know, had a real gr- easy to understand case where he had already been working at a store um, up where he was in college at Stanford and he was home on vacation. And, you know, it was like, maybe I'll pick up some shifts in uh, the store near his parents' house, which is more Southern California. And they greeted him at the door and he was like, yeah, I like want to pick up some hours. And like, I've worked here before. And they sort of inquired whoever was meeting them and kind of came back and was like, yeah, my manager says like, we already have too many Filipinos. Uh We're like, we already have enough. Like, you know, so sometimes it was like, they forgot to use the, you know, mm-hmm. coded language or to not tell them a big thing was just zeroing out people's hours, which just mm-hmm. means like you're fired, but they don't tell you, <laughs> mm-hmm. which happened to Carla, who's another one of the characters in the film. And, you know, she, it's like, you just call in to see if you have hours for the week. And they're like, nope, try again next week. And it's like, after a while, you kind of get the hint. And I just feel like that shows you how much people wanted to work there. And that's another thing. That's something I remember. I remember growing up, it was always like understood like, oh, that person works at Abercrombie and Fitch or that person was recruited to work at Abercrombie Mm -hmm. and Fitch. Like, what did that mean? It meant they were hot, right? That's like, it was like, I'm like a model. Yeah. It would always be a bragging rights for people where I came from. We would go to the malls and it was like, if somebody recruited you, whether it be an Abercrombie or 
sometimes like the model scouts would be at the mall, right? And I remember kids being like, well, I got scouted by whatever crazy service to be a model. And it was crazy, but it was it was a status symbol. And then also sometimes one of the things I found very interesting with the documentary was sometimes there were even overtly racist things on the clothing, which when we... Seeing those images, I remembered those shirts. And of course, it's shocking now to look through the lens of 2022 and see some of the things that were just very vibrantly printed on a t-shirt and sold for so much money, uh, that things that were so inappropriate. And and it's like, you, I, you almost forget that era. It's It was shocking. Shocking. I, uh, yeah, I think, I think, look, the, the, a big angle for me for how I wanted the film to feel for the viewer was like to kind of draw a circle around all of us and the us just meaning like society at large. And like, we all like lived it. And a lot of us were like culpable in it. Even if again, I'm like, well, I didn't shop there, but like that, that's like kind of not the point or I didn't, you know, fire someone. It's like, no, this was the, the environment that we, we were in and those graphic tees that had all of this like kitschy, but really just racist imagery. It's like, as someone says in the film who worked there in that department, it's like the kids were buying them. So that's why we kept making yeah. them. And it's like, it wasn't that long ago. And that really no. spurred this whole gender of renewed kind of Asian American student activism wave that th- this particular shirts that like, you know, we talk about the the two Wong's shirts, but like you said, there's like a whole fleet. <laughs> it was like mm-hmm. a whole sort of category of shirts for them. You can see that there were also always people all on the way who like were picking up what they, what was being put down and like stood up to it. But somehow, like, it's still, it wasn't enough to like rock the boat. Like Abercrombie still reigned supreme for many, many years after those kind of moments of activism. Was there a a certain thing that you think pushed the brand into the stratosphere in a way? I mean, you sort of touch on in the, in the film about the LFO song and that kind of being a little bit of a turning point. Would there be one thing that you think really helped this brand loom large more so than other moments? Or do you think it was a collection of things? I mean, I kind of think it's a, it's a collection of things. I think they like expanded, you know, the, the, this was a brand that truly was established, you know, 1890s. Like that's not a, uh, um, a marketing thing. It really was an old brand that like was infused with this new concept um, of being like a, a cool, sexy teen brand. But actually the clothes weren't necessarily that sexy. Like it was just kind of preppy basics with big logos. But I think the way that they expanded really helped. They really, f- the, the story really felt like it was like social media and influencer tactics like IRL. You know what I mean? Like it really was they would open stores where there was like a college campus nearby that they would try to get the cool kids from that college campus. And I think they really did do things in a quite like social network mindful way. And again, they didn't care about their workers always being the best workers. They just had to be the coolest, hottest, you know, the ones that they would want. And so I feel like it was more like they figured out this formula that worked and then they replicated it and grew and grew and grew. And I think around the late nineties, when they had the Magalog, the sort of catalog with lots of naked, yeah, like naked, beautiful, artistic, totally naked, like very homoerotic, but lots and lots of naked women too. Looking back at those catalogs, like definitely um, it was equal opportunity nudity. I think that and the fact that that got buzzy and parents didn't like it. And there were, we don't really go into it in the film, but there definitely was like mothers against drunk driving, like came after it. And like, you know, and I think that kind of stuff only makes things more tantalizing yeah, Mm. for young people. So I think that was kind of the perfect storm of like the late nineties and it just pushed into like a billion billion dollars in revenue and more. I think those catalogs were like my first gay porn magazines. Like I remember sneaking them and they were so homoerotic. And so I think a lot about how it affected my own, as well as a generation of men's body image and and certainly women too. I mean, but I think, speaking from my own experience, 
I remember looking at those bodies and it was like an impossible body standard. Oh, yeah. And now those bodies are the ones that are displayed in like the Marvel movies. And, and I think mm-hmm. we're starting just recently to kind of peel back that and how it affects young men. But growing up in that era, it was like, that's the desirable body type for men to be and to aspire to be as well as as a gay man to, to want to date. And it's an impossible standard. Yeah. So many of my friends, like my gay male friends, when I would bring up this topic, I mean, that was also immediately it was apparent there was like a different knee jerk narrative that would come out, which was always either like, it's crazy how it was this like gay aesthetic that was being sold to straight America. And they like kind of didn't pick that up. Um, and also Shocking, like Allison, it's, that it's no crazy. one picked it up. Cause if you look at those magazines, my, we just moved and my boyfriend had an old box of stuff that included some of those magazines and we were looking at them and it's like, they were so gay. Like so it was gay. very clearly men wrestling in the nude. And I mean, you couldn't really get much. I, I would go to the Borders bookstore and get sometimes try to sneak the gay, like the gay actual magazines that were advertised to the gay community. And those weren't as uh, homosexual as the Abercrombie catalogs were. Yeah. I mean, no one picked up on it. No one picked up on it. That is maybe one of the most, like, I don't like, it's hard for me to explain like things about it because you, you can't like, it's not like you can be surprised to be like, look at how blatant racism was in America. Like that's not really a shocking thing. It's shocking to be able to like really break down a system and how it works. But no, I don't remember anyone ever talking about Abercrombie being gay as like a normative, Mm -hmm. like, you know, mainstream conversation. I remember people were like Abercrombie's like just for white people. Like that was something people would be willing to say, maybe not totally understanding how that was enforced and how messed up that was. But I don't remember that. There um, was a mad TV sketch. Oh yeah, that's true. It was very, it was like, it was like Six or seven times yeah. they did that sketch. That sketch is amazing. So it was so good. Yeah. They're definitely, but I guess the yeah, I guess that but the larger narrative, you're right. I don't think there was the, the larger I, I don't, narrative. I had two older that. brothers, and neither of my two old straight older brothers thought that there was anything gay about the brand. Yeah. No, you're right. Mad TV definitely understood it a million percent. I feel like kids <laughs> they were ahead like, of the game. <laughs> but kids weren't really like yeah. talking about it like that. And I feel like some of my friends too, like I have now a bunch of the those those catalogs, you know, sell for a lot on eBay. Like oh, we really? we really had to um kind of scrimp and save to find the, you know, the ones that didn't break the bank. So we had collection for research and oh, um, you should have called me. I have oh, we yeah, have a closet full of them, I think. One time I was shooting for another film, like while this one was being made and it was at the like Airbnb type location that we were using for an interview. And they, the owner had like a stack of, of these, of these magazines. And we tried to, we were like, we'll pay you to, um, to borrow them and like scan them and bring them back. Like we were, you know, he wasn't going to part with them, but he was like, you know, we were like, we'll pay you and we'll bring it back and we'll hand carry it. And he, he wouldn't let us because it would like crease the, the pages. Cause we were like, look, it's a mother load. He had like a whole stack of them, but yeah, I've like, I have a bunch at my house now and, you know, take it out when friends are over. And I've definitely a lot of friends look at it and they have that reaction that you said where they're like, Oh, this is where all my unhealthy ideas of, uh, about what bodies are attractive and you know this is where it all comes from and i don't like it and i'm like working on it like yeah, I I, on it to this day it caused me so I, I could i think i could truly trace back a lot of my body image eating issues back to the the abercrombie catalogs and the stores and the the bags that had the abs on the cover uh, and then even when i got to college you mentioned the culture of putting these stores at schools. And I grew up in Ohio and the was the offices were in Columbus, Ohio, right? That was where yep. the headquarters were. And I I didn't go to Ohio Ohio State, but I would visit friends at Ohio State, which was in Columbus. And it was always you would meet these guys who were like the cool guys on campus who worked for the Abercrombie uh headquarters. And it was like even in a in that college town, it was such a status. It's fascinating. It's people, fascinating. 
described like going to the campus because I do think they called it the the mm-hmm. campus in in Columbus and yeah you know you're greeted by like beautiful blonde guy with his shirt off like tossing a football up it's like hey man what's up you know like you're immediately like that that was like the vibe again I feel like they kind of predated a lot of stuff that you see in like the tech world like that kind of culture where like the office place is like a campus mm. you know and it's sort of like you know, 13th grade, you're continuing your like party days, um, work hard, play hard. Like, you know, the, the, we, we touch on that in the film. It's not like all about that. Cause it's really about the impact it had on all of us, not just the people, who, you know, the culture of, of the people who work there, but yeah, it was absolutely that vibe. And Columbus is like a super company town when it comes to Les Wexner's companies and all the clothing companies there. Allison, did you have an opinion of the brand before making this movie or or did you make this movie and did your opinion change? Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I think I had these like vague memories of what it was like growing up. I think it was in talking to more and more people where I realized like, oh, this is like a national a vibe. Like I feel like being touched by like how personal how personally people took like when you're like do you remember Abercrombie and Fitch I think that like showed me more and more how deep of an impact it was but I feel like there was so much that I didn't know going into it which is kind of how I I like I feel like I pick topics it's like a combination of intuition that you think it's worthwhile to go down this road and you know that there's something there to really sink your teeth into but like you don't know the whole story when you go into it and that would be so boring and I'd probably worry that I was missing something if I just, and I was just confirming all my existing ideas. If all I found was what I expected to find, that's kind of why I love the documentary. But I feel like going into it, I just was like, this was a brand that wasn't for me. And I didn't know much about the leadership and how the company functioned. Icons, when picking a commerce platform for your business, you have two choices. Frustration? Ah! Or sales. I prefer don't you? That's the sound you'll hear when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell, online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Now, Shopify is the best all-in-one commerce platform capable of handling your business's complexity. No matter how big you grow, step up to Shopify and harness the best converting checkout and the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands like here at Everything Iconic. We use this as well, but also Ruggable, Allbirds. I love my Allbirds. I love my Ruggable. Brooklyn and so many others. I can say from experience, it's really easy to use. You're probably thinking, sure, but migrating is going to be a headache. But Shopify's app store has the migration apps you need to migrate everything over super easy and conveniently. And I feel like after months of hard work creating the look and feel of your brand, it can be soul crushing when your commerce platform makes it blend in with the rest. But when you switch to Shopify, you'll regain control of your brand's look and store functionality. Thanks to stylish, no code themes truly could not be easier your customizations, and advanced shopping features that keep your customers coming back. So stop leaving sales on the table. Switch your business to Shopify and discover why millions trust Shopify as their all-in-one commerce platform to build, grow, and run their business. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash everything iconic, all lowercase. That's one month for just $1 at shopify.com slash everything iconic, shopify.com slash everything iconic. Abercrombie recently said they evolved in reference to the documentary. They had put out a statement. Do you think they've done enough? No, but with a question of also like, what do we expect from Mm -hmm. a clothing company besides as Phil Yu says in the film, you know, so brilliantly, like, you know, they're just trying to sell us a V-neck. Like, what do we really expect, you know, a clothing Mm -hmm. company to do to like make the world a better place? But in terms of, look, their, their marketing has definitely changed. They are now in step, frankly, with what is considered good business practices today. It's like inclusivity is much more of a, um, you know, is 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 much more fashionable, and you know, you can like create your campaigns around 
body positivity mm-hmm. and and diversity and much, much better than the alternative for sure. I think that it's important to look at what the company's actually done and not just through the lens of like corporate spin. They're different now. And they did after they had to, you know, they were forced to, they made their the numbers of like the racial composition, for instance, of people working in the stores changed when they were, you know, court mandated to to do so. Mm -hmm. Mike Jeffries remained, you know, the CEO who, who put all this in place, you know, not only did he still stick around for, you know, a decade after that lawsuit, for example, it takes more than one guy to do whatever Crombie did. And even after Mike Jeffries left in 2014, 2014, 2015, um, there was no big cleaning of house and people who ran, whose responsibility was to run the stores. There were many people who kept their jobs who were still there as recently as, you know, 2020, um, continued to have illustrious careers. So I feel like it's convenient to kind of pin all the, all the sins on one guy, um, who deserves real criticism, but it really, it took more than him mm-hmm. to do it. And, I don't have a full picture of what's going on internally at ANF, but like I, I don't really feel like they've fully reckoned with their whole past. You know, I think they're kind of just pointing to the things they do now that are that are different and kind of go along with what people mostly want from brands. Were there threads in the movie that you had to pull back from? Because obviously it, it can't be a hundred hour film, but I would imagine that. Uh, there were things that you must have discovered that maybe didn't make it or that you and certain cuts of the film maybe explored. I was even thinking that when you were talking about talking to some of the models in the film, and I think there's also a whole underbelly of the shooting of those young men uh, that is touched upon. But I, I wonder, are there threads that you learned about that didn't get explored fully? Oh yeah. I mean, I, I feel like um, there you know, you can think about some of the other films, you know, documentary, but also scripted series, things that are out there right now. I don't know if you've been watching like, you know, We Crashed or Super Pumped. We or, just finished you know. Super Pumped last night. Yeah. Oh, yeah, me too. I felt yeah. like the last episode wasn't as it's good. It's too as, long to me. Yeah. I thought the episodes were too long. Yeah. Um, but I was surprised how much I, that I did watch the whole thing. Like, and I do think there you can see what's like entertaining about there's kind of a formula to these kinds of stories. Like now there's like a genre. I feel like as of the last like month, like I'm like, this is a genre. Mm -hmm, It's like, mm -hmm. you know, bad bad CEO. Like, yeah, like exactly. But like, that's really interested in, in his personal failings. And that gets to then be sort of the avatar for what's, you know, what they did. And it almost kind of makes them like, what, what I worry about is like being really interested in the motives of the CEO I feel like that is sometimes a little bit exculpatory. Like it lets a lot of people off the hook and it lets a lot of things about the story off the hook, you know? Mm. And so I feel like in terms of what threads we did choose to kind of stick with, I think you can kind of tell in White Hot that it's like, we're really interested in, because this brand had this kind of personal impact on so many young people, it's like, we're interested in that, the the story of the system and this bigger picture and who it hurt and like making that really concrete but so, yes, you also have like, you know, uh, like intense CEO who people both call a genius. And also, you know, um, there's a lot of like hijinks and, you know, quirky behavior. And then there's like a company culture, you know, it has kind of all those hallmarks. So, you know, what the photo shoots were like for the models, which everyone, it was very like, I think there's still a line in the film about it. Like it was very like survivor-esque. They would bring like a ton of models there and you kind of get cut as like the days went on, which many models were like that, you know, of course, being a model means you face a lot of rejection and you're treated like, you know, you're just there to be on camera. But there was like a certain vibe about the Abercrombie shoots that was like, unlike others. And this idea that like, you might just get sent home and you're there to like party with all, all, all of your, you know, these, these kids, your age. So a lot of things that were super unique to Abercrombie. Um, And, but I just think like, for the bigger picture, like we were sort of less, we didn't want like certain behaviors to distract from kind of the, the point that this film mm-hmm. was trying to make, but there's like tons of stories. And the best part is everyone's going to social media to talk about all this stuff now, which 
I'm really happy about like all, you know, as we tried to talk to lots and lots of former employees and models and people, you know, at different levels of the company, like just the poster and the trailer coming out on Netflix. It's like so many people just being like, I've got my story. Like they Mm -hmm. should have interviewed me. And I'm like, yes, (laughs) like share your story. What do, what do you, what did you learn about other brands at the time and how they responded to the popularity of Abercrombie? Did you, did other brands kind of try to replicate the the same things that they were doing? Yeah, I think I don't want to like my, my like fashion history since we finished a couple of months ago, like, but I definitely feel like, you know, American Eagle and Aeropastel like did kind of like, you know, they were kind of traveling in the wake. A lot of people don't realize that Hollister is Abercrombie mm-hmm. and Fitch, you know? So sometimes people are like, oh yeah, I didn't really shop at Abercrombie, but I remember how bad Hollister was. I'm like, no, no, that's the same, same, it's the same company, mm-hmm. <laughs> same company. Um, but um, I think, you know, I, I think back, cause I feel like, you know, the gap, like the, this moment of like big logos, you know, was just, that was like this era as well. Um and I think the next era is really part of the story of Abercrombie's downfall too, which is just like fast fashion. Not that this was like slow fashion. I mean, it was still being, you know, made, but, but fast fashion um, and kind of H and M and that kind of the idea that you're really like, I'm going to buy something and it's going to be at a cheaper price point and I'm going to replace it, you know, cause it's that cheap, um, you know, in a couple months, I think that was also like the thing that kind of marked the sea change in, you know, youth buying trends that then Abercrombie really had to fight against more so than like just their competitors, like direct competitors. I think um, sort of the rise of H&M and Zara and all of that. Um, I thought it was, was interesting worried about in the doc. I think it was in the documentary. You talk about how uh, the brand of Abercrombie really started as being semi-aspirational like it was an it was uh expensive enough that you would still be people would still be able to afford it right yeah and uh that i feel like it took us a while to like crack this part of like how does abercrombie fit in with like calvin klein or like ralph Lauren? because you know also talk about aspirational in terms of the photography they do they're using some of the same like high fashion photographers um you know, they're like playing with sex, but I finally figured out like the difference was that Abercrombie is a mall brand. <laughs> you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, cause in my mind, I was like, wasn't there Calvin, Calvin no, Klein? You or, get like, Calvin Klein. No, mm-hmm. that was different. That was like a little more, like that was definitely like a higher price point. It might be like a part of a department store or like something you go to the city for, but like Abercrombie was um, another like sort of trick that it pulled was like, it was so firmly like a middle of America, like mall brand, but like managed to build up the allure that it was, that it was worth paying a little bit more for, but not so much that you couldn't Mm -hmm. save up and get that one shirt. You know what I mean? And I think the way that they priced it and the fact that when they started and they're under Les Wexner also, you know, he's like the limited and express. And if he knows anything, he knows from, you know, real estate in malls. And so Abercrombie also always had like a really prime position in the mall. When you talk about what are some of the factors that made it really successful, you know, getting into the right malls and having a good spot. And wasn't it purposeful to have it kind of look like a cave from the outside? Like you had to get inside to see the clothes, right? That was purposeful. Isn't it also, it's funny to me when it's like, everyone's talking about someone being like a retail genius. And, and I'm always like, explain to me what is genius. You know, it's just like, it's not like a thing that I immediately like pick up on. And I feel like that was part of it. It was literally like, he like made it. So you had to go in the store. I'm like, yeah. I guess that's genius if like the alternative is walking by. But yeah, it was like all very clearly designed back then. You know, it had it wasn't like a window display. It, it really was, was like you had to go in. And honestly, I feel like it was when I was learning about that, that I like recovered a memory of like going into the Abercrombie at King of Prussia because I feel like I was, you know, just 
hella intimidated by it. And that, cause I think you really had to go in and the music was loud. I was like, suddenly like a recovered memory of like, Oh yeah, it was loud. It's dark. I went into like, and to try to see if there's like a sale rack, which there is not. And I was like, okay, this I'm mm-hmm. by. like, that's not, this isn't where, where I shop, but it was like, the music was meant to be so loud. The scent. That, like parents don't like it. They like, employees are required to spray the fierce cologne at regular, you know, frequent intervals um, to keep that smell going. Um, It's meant to be dimly lit and the, and it truly is like the mad TV sketch where like the employees, there's certain ways that they're supposed to dress, but also interact. Like it isn't like, Hey, how can I help you? You know, it's like, sub. You yeah, know, very like aloof. Yeah, very, very aloof. Like that was like the correct, that was like dictated, like how you're supposed to kind of behave. And like, if you're into each other and ignoring the customers, again, probably not from the perspective of like the managers who were running the stores who like needed clothes folded and wanted, you know, needed a job to be done. But from like the the higher ups and like the the vision of the store, that was like, you're doing it right. I have a vivid memory of my mother getting frustrated. She's like, Dan, I'm not going to be in the store. It's too loud. And she like stormed out of it. And I, I was like, I still want to shop, but I couldn't, couldn't afford anything. There were so many celebrities that worked in those catalogs. I mean, people like Channing Tatum, Jennifer Lawrence, Taylor Swift, I think was even in a, a campaign. Would there be a face of Abercrombie? I mean, I think of the Carlson twins. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They, they to me, but it was that right? Is there someone yeah. that really was the face? I, I think it was like meant to be because like these are all people who are famous now, but at the time, like I mean, Heidi Klum was on the cover of one of the the catalogs, and you know, I'm sure she was very well known at that time, but it's like I think it is a little bit more like it's the hottest. It it could be like the hottest guy at your high school, Mm. like, you know, the captain of the football team. Like it's, it's a, it's a face that could be someone, you know, but it's like the best looking person that, you know. So I think it was less about, you know, whereas, you know, Calvin Klein, Mark Wahlberg, like kind of going for like Mm -hmm. a name to be. And and I think today, obviously it's much more about celebrity, but I, I think that, some of that was like more like up and coming talent or like Channing Tatum was just a model in the background of like a steamy shower scene in like the catalog. (laughs) I feel like, uh, yeah. So they, they definitely used some like really recognizable names, but I think they were also just looking for that kind of middle America captain of the football team vibe. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth, 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gays wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com This was such a delight to talk to you about all of this. Is there anything else you want to say about about this documentary specifically that you want to leave viewers or our listeners with? Um, I want them to watch it. I mean, they're going to watch it, but if anyone's going to watch it, it's going to be the everything iconic listeners because we love a nostalgia. And, and also I think it's so fascinating to look back as a socially con- socially conscious consumer now to look back at kind of how we were consuming things back then. I find it endlessly fascinating. I mean, I feel like that's, that's the thing that I'm really proud of. And I mean, it's like, I don't want to like just be the one to say it because hopefully make your own decision or like, you know, people can listen to you, (laughs) but it's like, I feel like um, the movie is also a nostalgia trip and it is also Mm -hmm. fun, but it's like also focused on, you know, what, what I think and hope are like sort of the right, like takeaways to like leave you with 
better questions about, you know, where we are today, uh, like where we were then, which wasn't that long ago and where we are today. Um, so I feel like you can like, it, it's like a really, you know, there's a lot of nostalgic music in it, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, fun and imagery and uh, yeah. stuff that you will, I, I looked at and was like, Oh my God, that was in the back of my mind somewhere. And I totally forgot about that bag or that catalog or whatever. Exactly. So it's just like, you know, there's, um, there's, there's a lot that I think needed to be treated like respectfully and seriously, but like it also part of the appeal is like, just being like, yeah, this touches everybody. And it's like, you're going to like have fun visiting it. Even when, if it's like visiting some uncomfortable truths, it's like, we're all, that's what we're here for. That's what a great documentary should Mm -hmm. do. You know, it's like entertainment, but also leaving you with a lot to talk about. So I hope people watch and talk about it and share your Abercrombie stories on social media so I can look at them and and enjoy them. But I imagine that somebody's going to want to make a scripted version of this because these things are so popular right now. Has anyone approached you yet? I mean, I mean, it's like starting happen. to happen for sure. It's funny. It was like just talking about it earlier today with some of my awesome team. Cause it's like, okay, yeah, this, this is going to be a thing. Especially like I said, it feels like in this last month, it's like mm-hmm. suddenly this is a whole genre. What do you think? What would you want to watch? I mean, especially now that you've watched and enjoyed the documentary, Love you know, that. so you, so you got through that. So like, what would add? I, I don't like when things are like, you, we didn't need that. You know what I mean? I don't want to make something that's like, we don't need that in the world because we already had the documentary, but what would you want more of? What would you be interested in? You know, I I love what you said about you wanted it to be fun and nostalgic and also teach us something. And, and I do think, I I think there were so many threads. I was just reading a book. It's not out yet. It comes out at the end of this month, but it's an actor who was also an Abercrombie model. And there's a chapter about his experience kind of uh, sneaking into an audition and then, ultimately getting the job and it was for Abercrombie kids, even though he was older and it was, it's very fascinating, but I, I think there's so much there too, that I'm, I'm really interested in. And we've heard little stories about the photography and, and the sets and, and those kind of things that I, I think there's a lot of interesting stuff there. I think the campus, like we talked about in Columbus being from Ohio, I think there's a lot of unexplored territory there mm-hmm. too. I mean, I think there's so many different threads, but ultimately what I think would be appealing for the viewer would be to see all of that nostalgia and be transported back while also telling a compelling story about hopefully a very specific person. I mean, I think the, what was the C- CEO's name? It's slip, slipping away from Mike me. Jeffries, Ma- Mike Jeffries. I think there'd be a very, incredibly fascinating story there in the scripted world. If you were to just kind of zero in on, on that person, but there's so many different ways to do it. I think that would, I would love to, I would love to see any of it. Yeah. (laughs) I know there's a lot there. And like you said, I mean, it's a real tight, you know, sometimes I feel like people sometimes are posting already. They're like, Oh, the show or the series. It's a, it's a feature. It's like a, you know, just shy of 90 minutes. So there's definitely a lot more story there. But we'll yeah. see. Yeah, we have to find, or at least if it was me making it, it would be like, what, what is, you know, how to add to where we started here for sure. Right. That's all I'm going to be thinking about for the rest of the day, Allison. Um, <laughs> yeah, send quick, me your notes. <laughs> before I let you go, I have to say, I loved your Jagged Little Pill documentary, which is on H. Is it on HBO Max, right? Yeah, it's on yeah. HBO Max. So people can watch it. And just uh, because I loved it, I just wanted to ask, what's your favorite Jagged Little Pill song? Do you have a favorite song from that album, Alanis Morissette? Yeah. So... Um, oh my God. Like what I would say is making the movie going into it. I thought the one song that was really like played for me, because I love that album and I still love it after, you know, making a whole movie about it was ironic. I really felt like I'm like, but ironic is the one that got too much radio play. And like, it's not like special to me, um, anymore. Um, but making the film and where that song comes in the movie too. And it's like paired with the moment that talks all about how her songs are like designed with communal gathering in mind, you know, that brilliant line from Hanif, like, and you just see all the fans and people singing along and like you're transported. So ironic, like now, like it, it changed it from being this like overplayed radio hit to being something that means a lot to me because of making the film. But I think, um, right through you is maybe my favorite. Cause I also really like, like angry ones, you know, that yeah. are like singing to someone that you're yeah. kind of mad at. What about you? 
was that I would be good. Was that Jagged Little Pill? That's a, Is not that a different Jagged Little Pill. Um, okay, then not that I would be good. What <laughs> album, was that our album right after that? Yeah, it was that. The album after was Supposed Former Infatuation Junkie. Was it from that one? I think so. Yeah. I also, I mean, Uninvited wasn't that album either, mm-hmm. but I was, I remember but being also an obsessed. important song. Yeah. I, I remember like listening to it over and over again. Um, yeah. So I guess um, uh, Cross-Eyed Bear that you gave to me, what was that one? <laughs> yeah. um, what was, you ought to know. You ought to know. So I mean, good. yeah, I did a groundling sketch singing that song. Um, and so it makes me laugh that song because it's so angry. And I, I had a funny memory associated with it. Anyway, I want to encourage everyone to check out Jagged Little Pill on HBO Max. And then more importantly, watch White Hot uh, on Netflix. It is so, so good. And I know people are going to love it. And uh, it was fantastic. So Allison, thank you so much for taking the time and for making this movie. It was fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Where can people find you on social media? Um, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Allie Clay. Just Allie, A-L-I-K-L-A-Y. Um, and, you know, I have to make another movie and come on so that we can just talk about Summer House. And Wait, what are you thinking of Summer things. House right now? Are you liking it? I didn't um, know that you were a Bravo fan. See, this, oh. the whole thing would have turned. I know. So, no, but it's good. We, like, stayed. I'm not here to to, to talk about, about Bravo. But, I yeah, I feel like uh, I got into Bravo while making this film called the brink where I followed Steve Bannon for 13 months. Um, Wait, is that out yet? That's not out. it. So it was on Hulu. It's coming to HBO max at the end of the year. Um, but it came out in 2019. Um, so yeah, it's like, what's um, the next one? What's the next one you're ooh, doing? The next one I do want to say, um, I am finishing a film right now about the WNBA. Um, and it's like the story, it's kind of a definitive look at, the 25 now 26 year history of this league of fucking amazing basketball players um, that uh, is told through the story of the New York Liberty. So kind of told through the story of one team. Oh my God. Um, I can't wait. When can we watch that? Um, There'll be some premiere and other announcements coming very soon. When is this coming out? This podcast? This will be out next week, I think, or it'll be out. When is the, documentary out the 26th um i think it'll be out right around there so it'll be out on the 18th i think okay then i can't say for that then but yeah but yeah that one's gonna be really good oh good well allison i love your work so thank you thank you thank you and thank you for taking the time and i can't wait for more thank you so much danny it's so great to talk to you i like girls that wear abercrombie and fish i take her if i have one wish She's been gone since that summer, since that summer.